Let's begin by reading out of 1 Thessalonians, and then we'll open in a word of prayer. But 1 Thessalonians, we did a bit of an intro last week, and we're going to read from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, and it reads this way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception that you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, we look to you this morning. Um, We know that we have everything we need for life and godliness in your son, Christ Jesus. And so we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we would do that to your glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, I've told the story quite a few times about at age 22, um, back in Clemson, uh, when I got serious about my faith. Um, But there's an interesting there's a lot of little interesting sub-stories in that, and one of them kind of is relevant today. Uh, this morning we're talking on the doctrines uh, of election, or what is known as predestination in the, in the church. If you're newer to the Christian faith or newer to church, uh, this, this might be kind of a brand new thing. If you've been around the church for a while, you probably have read about, heard about, uh, witnessed arguments between people or friends about this thing called predestination or election, and that's really what we're kind of leaning into this morning. Um, But when I got serious about my faith, it took about nine months before I got into a Christian group. I I tried at Clemson, FCA. uh, FCA was student-run and didn't really connect, but eventually I was invited to, and I went to a, a college group on campus there called RUF. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to an RUF, but it stands for Reformed University Fellowship. Reformed University Fellowship. So I was going there for a while. They had a, a guy, I was trying to remember his last name. His first name was David, but he was a pastor in his 40s, about the age that I am now. And he would come in and, and actually give sermons, uh, hour-long sermons to, to a bunch of college kids, about 200 in number. And he was coming out of the Reformed tradition and would, would really get into the text with us. Uh, gave me a love for preaching, gave me a love for scripture, um, and it was, it was uh, a wonderful season for me. I had a pastor uh, at the church my parents were going to back home um, that, was, that had heard that I was going to be going off to, uh, that I wanted to go off to seminary, grad school, and that I was following this kind of emergent calling to be a pastor. And so I had kind of this campus minister and then a, a pastor at my parents' church back home. And they they each began to realize there was another person in my life who was advising me to go to a different kind of seminary. Um, so if you really break down 
the Christian world, you can, you can put it into these binaries between Protestant and Catholic, uh, or between Calvinist and Armenian, um, or between Reformed theology, or what sometimes is referred to uh, more specifically as covenant theology, uh, or dispensational theology. You get these kind of two sides of, of everything that happen, and this particular one uh, was between somebody that espoused covenant theology and wanted me to go to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and between the pastor back home who was out of Dallas Seminary and wanted me to go to Dallas uh, Seminary because that was a dispensational school. And it took about a month or two before each of them had me reading uh, a book on their, their respective theology. So I was reading O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants, uh, which bored me even when I was a, a seminary grad, um, and Charles Ryrie's Dispensationalism, which bored me even more. Um, and it was the absolute, this is a side note, it was the absolute dumbest thing. It, and it still pains me today to wonder how in the world these two guys, from someone that's about nine months a year into passionately following the Lord and wanting to go off to grad school, that, that the one thing each of them kind of poured into my life was, was half of a battle about where I was going to go to seminary based on this kind of intramural debate about theology. Um, it was a miserable season of my life, and there was no joy, and I would never want to do that to anybody. Um, the only good that came out of it, in my mind, is I chose neither of those seminaries. <laughs> Uh, and, and I learned something really important in the, in the midst of it, and that's that it's really easy to get on the bandwagon of an extreme. Uh, but as Aristotle had it with his golden mean, or it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, that the, the one who fears God avoids all extremes, that truth is usually found in the middle. Um, that when you understand multiple sides to, to an argument or a discussion, that you, you tend to realize they both have merit, and, and you kind of find yourself coming to a balanced position. So I'm in this reform group, though. That was the side note. I'm in this reform group. And I, I still remember the most perplexing conversation uh, after one of these Wednesday nights that all the, the cool kids, kind of the group, uh, young men, young women, that were really into this group. They'd been in there for years. Uh, they all went to this church. It was a reformed church. It's called PCA. If you know PCA, it's Presbyterian Church in America. And it comes out of a very orthodox, reformed background. And they all kind of went to this church. And they had a pastor there who was about my age as well, uh, my age now. And uh, he was known for playing the harmonica to Bob Dylan and all these things. And so those college kids thought he was really cool. And so that's where they would go on Sunday, small little church. But this particular Wednesday, everyone was gathered around and buzzing about going to church that Sunday. And, and I'm kind of... The, I didn't really understand that culture or know much of it, and I'm kind of listening to it. And the reason was that the, the church was going through the book of 1 Peter and was going to talk about the doctrines of election or predestination. And so they were all buzzing to go to church that Sunday because they wanted to see how this pastor was going to handle the doctrines of election. Because in that culture, that, that's a, a huge part of, of what frames the worldview. Um, and so I went that Sunday just going, what is this whole thing? And um, I listened to the sermon. 
and it was a good biblical sermon. A lot of quotes by John Calvin, uh, and every time there was a John Calvin quote, everyone would go, ooh, ooh. Uh, and I came out, and I was just really confused why the coolest Sunday of the year wasn't Easter uh, or wasn't Advent or wasn't Lent, but it was when a bunch of kids wanted to go hear how they could be that much more certain um, that they were, this is the way I think they, they understood it, that they were in and that other people were out. Like it was really exciting for them to have that line drawn really clearly so they could just kind of be like, you know, it sucks for you, but you're getting what you deserved because you're a sinner. And even though I'm a sinner too, God loves me, um, not you. And, and so it was this really interesting thing. Now, uh, here's the confession. Of all the different theologies out there, I would probably lean a strongest into a Reformed tradition, okay? The Reformed uh, worldview, the Reformed tradition. So I'm going to critique Calvinism today, but I'm doing it as somebody that probably lands closest to that than I do anything else. Is that fair? So I just don't, I want to be able to talk freely and not, not have you feel like I'm beating up on a straw man or, or, or something like that. Um, I actually uh, love covenant theology and find a lot, of, um, a lot of rationale for how Tam and I parent kind of coming from that. So, uh, so interesting thing, um, what is this Calvinism? And so let's jump into this a bit. Calvinism uh, is named after John Calvin, the early reformer, and early reformers were uh, German, so the, the Reformation started with uh, Martin Luther in, in Wittenberg, Germany, and Philip Melanchthon, who was kind of his sidekick for the, next, uh, the rest of his life, and then he, you know, even further carrying forward the Lutheran Reformation. But the Reformation spread because uh, as people were reading the newfound Greek texts uh, of the New Testament and getting into this and beginning to uh, realize there was a, a way to go about trying to bring the church back to New Testament times, you ended up with many reformers. There was a, a particular reformer by the name of John Calvin who is French and was in France. And um, because of the religious persecution there, uh, France, France and Spain remained uh, Catholic. France was ripped apart uh, by the tension between Protestantism and, and Catholicism and had many wars over this. And that's one of the reasons why when you get all the way to the French Revolution, one of the reasons, because there's many other, but one of the reasons why when you, when you get to the French Revolution, people are, are done with religion. And religion really gets, at the time of the, uh, the end of the 1700s, gets swept aside completely in the building of this secular society. But because really this fighting over religion had been so much a part of the French history. Spain, not as much internal fighting, but both of those countries remained Catholic. Calvin ends up being forced out of France, and he goes to kind of the neutral country. And we all know who the neutral country is in, in Europe, right? Who's the neutral country? Switzerland. Yeah, we all know that. Uh, only half of you don't want to say it. Um, so, so Calvin goes to Geneva, and in Geneva, and in, in Switzerland, uh, there's this freedom and the ideas of kind of the Reformation begin to congeal with several theologians, uh, notably the Zurich pastor 
uh, Oreg Zwingli, okay? And so Zwingli is one of the Swiss reformers, and then you've got Calvin, and you've got this growing school of a reformation there that's down in Switzerland, and then you had the Lutherans up there. By the way, Calvinism was first a, a derogatory term that was thrown at the reformers by Lutherans, okay? So it was like a, a derogatory term of you Calvinists, right? And uh, so you get this interesting thing, these two camps, they tried to bring them together so that you'd kind of have one unified uh, Reformation kind of focus or theology. And the, the points of disagreement were really the Lord's Supper, uh, which we're going to uh, partake of today, uh, worship. So the Lutherans still were a little bit okay with, with art. I mean, a little bit more cultured. Uh, it's why the Lutheran tradition, they probably still drink or always did, but in strong uh, reformed circles, maybe less so. Um, but the, the art forms, if you go to the churches and visit the old churches in Zurich and in Geneva and, and see the way they were formed, everything ornate had been stripped away from them. Everything ornate. They say that the reason the Swiss became such good watchmakers uh, was because it was the only jewelry that was allowed. So kind of the Protestant work ethic allowed for time. Um, but you weren't supposed to be wearing anything ornate. And so watches became a really big thing. It's strands of that are true. Um, but you can see in Geneva, um, in the houses in the old section of that city, where you had windows that were kind of a bit ornate and how the windows were done. And then the houses that were built during Calvin's stay in Geneva are just these square windows completely stripped of anything frivolous or ornate. So you've got this kind of idea going on in Geneva that we're not going to be pulled in by any emotive things, the subjective, okay? So that was a point of disagreement. Um, and there was a third one uh, that's slipping my mind right now. And the biggest thing about the Lord's Supper was you had the Catholic Church that believe, uh, believed and still believes that, that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ, that in a supernatural way, and I could get into the philosophy behind this in the Middle Ages of how, how can a substance that has the properties of bread um, also have the properties of a human being. And you have Occam and others who, who worked out these elaborate theologies or philosophies about substances and properties to figure out like how this can actually be the body of Christ even though it exhibits the nature of bread. But when you get to Luther, Luther ends up in a middle position, and Lutherans are in a middle position between the Catholics and, say, the Reformers in Switzerland. The Reformers in Switzerland, especially if you're um, coming out of a Baptist background, it, it's very much, this is just a symbolic thing we do in remembrance or celebration of Jesus Christ. It's, it's something we do that's sacred, but it's sacred because of, of what we're remembering and uh, like anything else we do that we mark on the calendar, any kind of anniversary or whatnot, it's, it's just simply something that marks our ability to pause and remember back to what happened. So it's a very symbolic thing that way. Luther lands in the middle, and he comes up with this doctrine of uh, real presence. So not that it's actually the flesh or the body of Christ, but somehow Jesus is really present uh, in that moment, in that space, when people are taking and, and breaking off bread and, and partaking of communion. So for, for Luther, he wanted to keep uh, the literal sense of Jesus saying, this is my body, and that Jesus somehow is, is present 
in a very significant way when communion's taken. So when they tried to bring these two factions together, uh, the legend goes that Luther, uh, if you know anything about Luther, Luther was very bombastic. Uh, he, he didn't hold his words at all. He said what he thought, and, and he was a man with kind of a short fuse and all that. But so the legend is that Luther took off his shoe and with Zwingli sitting across the table and started banging his shoe on the table, screaming, he said, this is my body. Um, and, and just yelling at Zwingli that Zwingli had it wrong. And so uh, the fallout from that meeting was that you had the Lutheran, Lutherans going uh, their way. And in this Swiss, Swiss kind of incubator, you have all of these theologians and pastors growing up and emerging uh, and congealing around some, some basic ideas. So I've got a picture from Geneva. So if uh, you go to Geneva, you'll see... Um, and you're going to have to abide with the, the 80s laser pointer today, just because. Just uh, so this guy here is, is actually William Farrell. Not, not Will Farrell, but he's William Farrell. Um, and then you've got uh, Calvin here with, with, doesn't he look austere? Um, uh, Beza, I think, is this guy's name, and this is John Knox. Um, and these four guys make up kind of the, the four horsemen of, of a certain part of the Reformation, but four leading thinkers in uh, the Reformation. And the interesting thing that you get with the Reformers in Switzerland is that as they kind of missionary out, they take those Reformed ideas uh, and they take them with them where they go. So I've got a map that's not going to show up very clearly at first, um, but this is a map that's going to show where Catholicism was, where Lutheranism was, and then where Calvinism goes to in the gray. Whoop, but, well, we can do it on this one. Go back just a second if we can. The gray marks where Catholicism holds sway. And so obviously you've got France and Spain, uh, Italy and, and whatnot. Um, but you can begin to see all these little dots here because you had the, the French Huguenots, and so that was kind of the, the little pockets of reformed thinking in France that were very focused on overthrowing, uh, overthrowing Catholicism and led to a lot of those wars. And out of the French-speaking Huguenots, that travels up then to this pink area. So the pink is gonna be um, the areas where the Reformation really holds sway, and then you get some of it all the way over here. Um, and, uh, but so we can zoom in on the other map now. So coming out of Switzerland, we see the missionaries go. And all, coming all the way up to Holland, the French-speaking uh, Huguenots bring it to Holland. And you see uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, if you've ever heard of that, and other catechisms that really begin what is, what is known as kind of the... Uh, the Dutch Reformed tradition. Anybody ever heard the phrase the Dutch Reformed tradition or Dutch Reformed church? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Dutch. Um, a lot of you know that. Uh, my dad was born in Holland and I didn't grow up in a Dutch community. There's Dutch communities in America around Grand Rapids, uh, some in Southern California, different pockets in the United States. You have kind of these enclave, enclaves of where a lot of Dutch settlers came and you have these Dutch communities. And like Calvin College, that's why Calvin College is up where, where it is. 
Um, but when you get around these areas, you have this very strong Dutch Reformed tradition. And so I'm always asked when people find out that I'm Dutch, they're, they're like, well, you must be a part of the Dutch Reformed Church. And I'm like, no, like I actually came a totally different route. And yes, I, I, I'm very close to Reformed thinking, but I came a totally different route. I have no, I have no, no idea of the Dutch Reformed tradition kind of uh, in and of itself. So the interesting thing is it's the, it's, it's the Dutch Reformed tradition. Again, this is the 1500s that in the 1600s sailed down to Cape Coast uh, so that you, you had the uh, Dutch East Indies Company. Someone help me out. The Dutch East Indies, right? West Indies, East Indies, whatever, whatever it is. The one that's all the way over by India. Um, they needed a kind of a, a refueling, um, taking on supplies and provisions uh, place in Cape, uh, Cape Town, South Africa, became that place where they would... Uh, where they built a community and a settlement to, to really facilitate the economic kind of uh, interests of the Dutch Empire. And that Dutch Reformed group of settlers that went down to South Africa starting in Cape Town became the Afrikaners. And so the Afrikaners uh, had a very strong Calvinist bent and actually used that strong Calvinism, twisted that strong Calvinism, to, to allow for apartheid and their racial kind of theology with the idea that God chooses some to one spot and some to another. God chooses some to rule, some to be slaves, some to be this, some to be that. And that, that allowed for them to kind of create that separation. You also had John Knox in particular end up in Scotland where he found much favor. It was a lot harder going in England uh, for the, the Reformation, and you ended up with kind of the hybrid, which was the Anglican Church, the Church of England. But in Scotland, it, it really took roots. And so in America, when we have um, people from Ireland and Scotland coming over in the Appalachian uh, region of America, you had the nonconformists or the Puritans that didn't like the Church of England coming over to America. You had in the Northeast and, and in the Mid-Atlantic a very, very strong Calvinist or Reformed tradition in early America. Um, interestingly enough, that uh, what ends up happening now is you're seeing a resurgence of the Reformed tradition happening in the South. And, and why is that? Let me just, because it's, it's worth noting. Um, the South is known as the Bible Belt, but we never talk about why or how it got that way. So uh, in the Second Great Awakening, you had huge gains by the Baptists in the South and the Methodists. And so you, you're basically talking about uh, the 1820s, 1830s, etc., about two, two and a half decades worth of the Second Great Awakening. And you saw a lot of that taking root in the South. You also had something interesting where a very literal reading of the Bible was culturally looked, looked on well because of just like the, the Afrikaners, a very literal reading of the Bible allowed you to take the book of Philemon and what Peter says about slaves being su um, subject to their masters and it really worked in well with the worldview that the Southern Christians had of owning slaves, that kind of ultra literal and then applying it to their context. And they would even send out preachers um, to, to, to little uh, slave churches, um, sometimes like Nat Turner, people that were able to read, slaves that were able to read, that were raised up and then, and then contracted out by their owner 
to go teach the Peter verse about slavery to other um, slaves in different plantations. Uh, there's a movie coming out about it this fall. It's going to create a lot of controversy. But if you see it, you'll begin to understand how twisted the, the history of religion is with some of these things like slavery, that you would actually have a slave going and telling other slaves in a, deplor- a deplorable condition that they're stuck there and they need to, uh, in, in good Christian faith, um, be subject to their masters. Uh, it's actually part of why Nat Turner's rebellion happened was, was basically the internal workings of this man snapping um, because of what he was seeing and what he was made to take part in and the conditions that he was seeing on plantation to plantation of just how bad it was. But so you, uh, you have the gains in the Second Great Awakening. You have kind of the use of literal translations. But you also had an insular culture. So the southern slave-holding system was a very fragile one. That, so, so in the south, they didn't want and didn't, certainly didn't want after the Civil War any dissent that they wanted homogeny in thinking. They didn't want people questioning it. There were strong reactions if people question kind of how society is going. And so you, you began to kind of conform to that. You also had a culture that didn't get as much immigration as the North did or any other uh, kind of part of, of the emerging economy. And so in the South, which was a bit more agricultural and less immigration, you had a greater homogeny that way as well. And so in the South, you've always had this strong tradition that's never been kind of uh, watered down or challenged until now with migration patterns. You see some of that changing in the Bible Belt. But so you'll hear a lot about, about denominations just evaporating in the church today. The denominations are in the decline, they're losing numbers, all these kinds of things. The Presbyterian Church in America, remember I said I went to that small church and it was a PCA church? Presbyterian Church in America was born in the early 70s as a reaction to a more liberal move by the Presbyterian Church USA, which is the biggest Presbyterian denomination. Um, And in 1973, it had 41,000 members. And in 2013, uh, it had 367,033 members on its rolls, which is an increase of 790%. So one of the fastest growing denominations, Christian denominations in America, is this PCA denomination, this very orthodox, very conservative uh, very reformed um, denomination, which uh, a lot of the gains for the PCA are coming in the South. So what does Calvinism actually teach? What does it mean? Uh, I'll put a graphic up here, and it's called Tulip. Tulip, for the most part, was usually used by people that were trying to attack Calvinism. You see in the last 50 years or so that it, it with some groups of Calvinism, it, it begins to be a, a pride thing. Uh, tulip or a shorthand thing, and you actually see a movement where people will try and defend Calvinism by using tulip. But originally, it was it was more to kind of boil down the ideas so that you could kind of demonstrate or or show uh, maybe where you disagreed with it. But tulip is the acronym, and it stands for total depravity, which means there is no part of a human being that, in and of itself, naturally seeks God. Um, we do not have in us the ability to seek God, we are, we are dead. So it's a lot like um, Ezekiel where it's like we had hearts of stone and, and then God gives us a heart of flesh. This idea is the stone heart doesn't, doesn't choose its way into or seek to become a heart of flesh. A heart of stone is, is a dead heart. 
And so, or we were dead in our transgressions and we've been made alive. So the idea of total depravity is there's no part of you in and of yourself that naturally is inclined toward God, okay? Uh, unconditional election means that God chooses who he's gonna save uh, or who he's not gonna save. And he does that not on conditions of his knowledge of what you would do uh, or are going to do. So in other words, God doesn't look at me and say, Ken is going to be very, very, very virtuous in his 50s and 60s. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, there's still hope, right? Uh, Ken's going to be very virtuous in these generations or the, this, this age. So I'm going to go ahead and save him because, you know, I can see in my foreknowledge, say, says God, I can see what kind of person he would become or is going to become. So I'll choose him. Uh, unconditional election basically means, no, God's choosing of people is completely uh, his own reasons, his own choices. It's not conditioned on or based on anything I do. I don't earn it. It's, it's completely God's choice, which means limited atonement that, yes, Jesus died for the sins of the world, but in, in practical terms, he was dying for the sins of those who God was going to choose. He was dying for the sins of those who God had predestined or elected. These are synonymous kind of words, chosen, elected, predestined. That those that God was, is choosing, is going to choose, that Jesus' death really is for those people because these other people that God's not going to choose, Jesus' death isn't going to forgive their sins. And so you get this limited atonement. It's not that it's unlimited that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that all may come. You get a limited view of atonement. And then irresistible grace means that when God pursues you or anyone that he chooses, he can melt the heart of, of the, the hardest sinner. That when God begins this process of, of, of choosing you or calling you, that it will lead to your salvation. That there's this irresistible drawing of grace. And then perseverance of the saints comes out of that. That means that if your salvation is dependent on God's choosing, there's nothing you can do to earn it. That also means there's nothing you can do to lose it. So if God chose you, um, then, then you, will be, you will be caught up, brought up to heaven. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. So there's nothing you can do to earn it or to get it. And there's really nothing you're going to do once God has moved in your life um, or brought you into his elect that's going to let you fall out of that. And so their reading of John, um, this is the first letter of John where it says they were, they were among us, but they were never really a part of us, and now they have departed. Uh, that The idea here is on the, on the Reformed reading, the Calvinist reading, is that by leaving the Christian faith or the Christian community at that point, it wasn't that they were losing their salvation, um, it was demonstrating that they were actually never really a part of that group to begin with. By leaving, they're making known or, or manifesting the fact that they weren't actually saved in the first place. So just so you want, uh, in case you want to know, the, Calvinism and Reformed theology is 50 times bigger than just this right here. These are called the doctrines of grace. It's about the, the, how we understand salvation uh, within a Calvinist kind of framework. But uh, Calvinist or Reformed theology is much, much bigger than just this snapshot uh, of, of what's called the doctrines of grace and the view on salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody take a breath. <clears throat> take a breath. Um, 
And, uh, and so on the flip side of this would be a, a Dutch thinker by the name of Jacob Arminius, uh, who came along and really gave the, the other side of it. Um, and then you'll get some people that will land in the middle of these two camps, like I said, with everything. The other side of it is called Armenian theology and Armenian or, or Armenianism, uh, not Armenian, um, as in like the people group uh, up above uh, Turkey um, or like the Kardashians, um, not Ar Armenian in terms of background, but Armenian in terms of uh, following after Jacob Arminius and his theology, right? And Armenianism uh, basically says, no, we, we, we choose. We choose. God, God made the, the offer to all people and our free will is that, that we have the opportunity to choose uh, or we have the opportunity to reject. And if we go to hell, it's because to whatever degree we were made aware of God or the gospel, we've rejected that. So it's, it's kind of on us, so to speak. So those are the two poles. So um, Calvinism, again, it's a very strong idea, thought. And so when you're in it, it makes sense of a lot of your reading of scripture. When you're outside of it, um, you make jokes at it because again, it's, 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 a, it's an extreme view. So a couple jokes um, I've come across are, uh, how many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? Um, it doesn't matter because God, God ordained that the light bulb should go out, you know? And, uh, or why do Calvinists uh, not like um, taxi cabs? because they ask you where you want to go, you know. Um, I came across one recently, so this was uh, in the last couple weeks. Calvinism, some lives matter. Um, so that's kind of the, but, but for hundreds of years, this conversation, this debate, so to speak, is kind of this unfolding, rolling out uh, view of, of election. All right, here's the pivot point. I think... For most of, of Protestant history, we've completely misread the, the, the scriptures on uh, election and predestination, okay? Um, because the reformers had as, as their foil the Catholic Church, possibly the Lutherans themselves, and certainly as time progressed, they had the uh, Church of England. Um, none of them were very much concerned with a group of people that going back for 2,000 years were persecuted in Europe. Want to know what that group of people was? The Jews. The Jews, long before Hitler, by the way, the first ghetto was set up in Rome by the Pope. The first ever ghetto was set up in Rome during the Roman Inquisition which came about, uh, I want to say, late 1500s. The first ghetto of Jewish peoples was set up by a Roman pope. When the Nazis set up ghettos, they were doing something that had been very familiar and relatively unbroken for most of the previous 500 years in Europe. Did you know that? Okay. So um, in, in uh, the Spanish Inquisition which grew up in the 1400s. So again, the people that are sending uh, Columbus over to discover or find for, on a European sense, America, um, are also 
uh, the same people and, and their kind of subsequent heirs that, that sought to drove out um, the Muslims and the Jews from Spain. And so you had initially a lot of conversions, conversos, uh, people that were converted to Christianity out of Judaism, but you had a lot of, of false conversos. And so as the, the Spanish Inquisition kind of rolled along, um, you had people that, that wanted what Jewish bankers or business people or that were in the court with the king, positions of authority or power or money, wanted what they had, and you didn't think that they were true Christians. You thought they were just faking it, false conversos. And so you had to try and figure out a way, how do we chase these false conversos out? So you, you put pork on the plate. You put pork on the plate because... Um, Jews and Muslims, if you're observing Judaism or, or Islam, you're not supposed to eat pork. So if you're a false converso, this is how one of the ways we could kind of kind of watch or gauge what you, what you do or think. This is no small thing. I was in Barcelona this summer um, on a tapas tour where they explained how there are more pigs in Spain than there are people. And that the genesis of the hamon that they're famous for, the Iberian hamon and, and, uh, and, and, and basically what we would call charcuterie maybe that, that is in Spain, has its genesis going back to uh, the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, and, and putting more and more pork into the meals uh, to root out people that didn't belong. Um, now, I said last week that First Thessalonians was the first arguably, but, but probably most likely, the very first letter written or book written in the New Testament, predating the Gospels, predating any other letter that Paul wrote, that 1 Thessalonians, 20 years after Jesus dies, probably the oldest book in the New Testament. Jesus, therefore, when he goes to the, the, the group of people in, uh, the, in Thessalonica and only gets about a month with them, um, what do we know to be true about that experience that he had with them? It's almost so obvious, I don't know that you'll grab it right away, but here's one of the things we know to be true. He wasn't bringing any books with him. He, he wasn't bringing the New Testament. When we go somewhere now and we're going to evangelize people or we send missionaries somewhere, what's one of the first things they try to do if there's no translation of the Bible in that language? They try and translate it because one of the first things missionaries try to do is get you the Bible so that you can read the Gospel of John, so that you can read about Jesus. And, and kind of that's part of how we tell the story. When Paul comes with Silas and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica, he's not bringing any books. And he's not leaving any books behind. And what's the biggest question going on is up until the church at Antioch, which is relatively uh, maybe eight, ten years prior, you didn't have Gentiles uh, in a church with Jews together because that was forbidden by the law for Jews and Gentiles to mix that way or to sit down at fellowship meals. And so that was something that just recently had to be tackled in the church, going back to kind of the Jerusalem church, is that no, this gospel is for all people. And so we are one body. There is no division, no, no slave, no free man, no male, nor female. 
and no Jew nor Gentile, that we are one in Christ. That was in Galatians, which is probably the second book of the, of the New Testament written, where Paul is going, no, this is what we've agreed on, the Jerusalem leaders, the apostles and everybody, that we're a part of this one church. And so he's talking to these people where there's a Jewish group that has been in Thessalonica. Paul has never been here yet, meaning they have never heard the gospel yet. He's the first missionary. And you have a group of Jews and Paul is saying to them, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that you've waited for. Oh, and by the way, curveball, um, he's the Messiah for your Gentile neighbor too. And your Gentile neighbor is gonna, is gonna worship alongside with you. And oh, they don't have to become Jewish to do that. That God has, has, has chosen the Gentiles and he's predestined this to happen so that they now are joining in with you and together you make up one church and you're called for a purpose. You're not, no one's ever just called. My mom never screamed out the door, Ken. And I'm like, what mom? Oh, nothing. Dinner? No, nothing. Clean my room? No, just wanted to call you. I mean, you're never called without a, a, a reason. And so the, the, the Jewish people, let's put it on the screen, in Exodus were called. And they were called and, and told that if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the, the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. So out of everyone else, I'm choosing you. I'm electing you. I'm bringing you out. And you're going to be the people that, that are priests. All of you are priests and declaring my glory or worshiping me or having a relationship with me and going by my name. The nation, my nation, you belong to me. So that everyone would look at that and understand something about me by virtue of you. So you're called out to be a blessing to the nations or a light to the nations. What does Peter later on say in the New Testament? So this is Peter, the apostle Peter. And Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, by the way, the book of first Peter is written to Paul's audiences. It's kind of Peter, the apostle, this lead apostle, uh, writing in a very pastoral sense to the churches that Paul had started kind of to, uh, to talk to them and encourage them. But he's writing a letter that's going to go to all these places. And he says, um, chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Leave it there for a second. Jesus was chosen. And then we also are being chosen with a purpose. Um, a little bit further down in 1 Peter, it continues, and it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his one, uh, wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Leave that slide there. Um, the, the word you, but you, hemes in, in Greek, second line at, at the very end of that second line, hemes again, you, it's the plural form. Okay. Peter isn't saying you, uh, Frederica, or, or you, 
Jacob, or, or you, uh, Matthew, or you. He's, he's using the plural form, which, which is like us saying you all or y'all. Like you all are a chosen people. Who's the all here? The Gentile congregation that has been folded into God's plan at this point in time, now that Jesus came because God so loved the world. And it includes the Jewish people that have always been a part of God's calling. So in Romans, Paul will talk about the grafting in, like, like, a, like an agricultural metaphor, the grafting in of the Gentile people. But you all, you Gentile people, and the original people of God, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You've been called, you've been chosen for what purpose? To declare the praises of him who called you. So you have a purpose, and, and when, when you're called out and chosen, you're, you're now manifesting God's reason for choosing you, which is declaring his praises. Ephesians, um, I'm sorry, let me just do a quick aside. What, what is going on here and, and, and what happened? So Genesis 18, 17 through 19. There's a snippet of this on the screen. Uh, but then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be, will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is good and right and just. Again, Genesis 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Genesis 22, 18. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Genesis 26, 4. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. What Paul is talking about when he's talking about the doctrine of election, what Peter is talking about when he's talking about the doctrine of election is he's talking to a group of people that in the early church are taking the Old Testament scriptures and, and the, the Judaic faith and saying, you all have this understanding of being God's people and being called. And guess what? It's in the scriptures. God always planned, always planned to grow that by, by bringing in all non-Jews as well. Non-Jews meaning people that weren't descended from Abraham, ethnically, but Gentiles. And that all people, that, that the, church, the church would include not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. And that when we represent all nations, I'm Dutch, I know some of you are Irish, I know some of you are, are, are Scottish, some maybe Italian, that when all nations make up the church, that, that when we move forward as a bigger, fuller expression of God's plan and what he predestined to do, that we bring about the praises of him who called us. Does that make sense? Let me read... Uh, out of Ephesians, actually it's on the screen. Here's Ephesians, chapter 11, verse 10 through 14. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, you, Hamas, plural, you all also, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What's going on here again? Certainly God's choosing includes individual people. But it's a bigger picture than that. I'm fond of saying that, that we shouldn't be asking the question, what is God's will for my life? We should be asking the question, what is God's will so that I can serve it with my life? Do you see, we naturally in America start with ourselves. Salvation? Oh, am I saved or not saved? Does God love me or not love me? We, we naturally, st- God, what is your will for me? Like we naturally always start with ourselves rather than starting with God and what God is doing, has been doing, will do and how we, because of his grace, now get to be with him and a part of what he is doing in this world. So what is God's will that I might serve it with my life instead of God's, what is, you know, God, what is your will for my life? Do I buy this house or that house? Now I think God can guide us into some of those decisions, but that's the guidance of the Holy Spirit that's different than God's will, which is a meta-narrative over all of creation and history. And Paul is talking again, before most letters have been written in the New Testament, he's talking to this Ephesian church. And by the way, this Ephesian church takes root, and this is is the church that uh, John, late in life, ends up living near. And the churches around Ephesus are probably where the book of Revelation was written, those seven letters to the seven churches in that region. But early on in this Ephesian church out of Ephesus, Paul is saying, we were chosen, predestined according to his plan, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's not choosing to have a will for all of our lives, but his will that we would be the first to put our hope in Jesus and that that would be the praise to the praise of his glory. And you, all of you, Gentiles included, are included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, this gospel, this good news, and you believed it. And the Holy Spirit came in power and now you too are gonna receive an inheritance from God because you belong to him. So we close by going back to 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, we read it one more time, but with some context now. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel didn't come to, uh, didn't come to you simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep convictions. In other words, we know that God chose you because the, the fruit of his choosing, the purpose for which God calls people, that they would be a light to the praise of his glory, is, is actually happening with you. It came with power and deep conviction. And you became imitators of us. And you welcomed us in the midst of your suffering despite your suffering, you had this joy from the Lord and you became a model to this whole region of Macedonia. And because of you, the Lord's message rang out not only in Macedonia, but to the ends of the earth, meaning the rest of, of Europe it's beginning to spread to. And therefore, we don't need to say anything about it for, for this report, what kind of reception you gave and how people have turned from idols to serve the living God um, and to wait for his son, Jesus, who's going to come from heaven. In other words, it's obvious 
that God has chosen you and planned for you to be a part of his people because look what the Holy Spirit has done in coming into your life, changing you and bringing about this, this witness to the world that is also going out in power. God's plan, God's will is being fulfilled through you and because of that, you can take heart and you can be encouraged because God has chosen you. And you are a part of his plan, you're a part of his family, and you will inherit the fullness of the promises, beginning with Abraham all the way through, that, that those who trust in the Lord do not trust in vain. And we can sit around and debate in seminary all we want about Jacob Arminius and John Calvin and, and whether some lives matter or all lives, am I in or out? But Jesus himself said, don't try and figure out who's saved or not saved. Follow me and bear fruit. And by the way, and this is in the book of 1 John and in 1 Peter, as you're bearing fruit, it says, uh, your assurance of salvation goes up. In other words, the confidence that God knows you and that you know God as you're, as you're fulfilling his purposes goes up. It's not some doctrine that tells you once saved, always saved. It's not, not some doctrine that you put your, your hope in or Calvinism or some, some revivalist that said, if you said this prayer, then you are saved, will always be saved. Amen. It's because as you follow Jesus, you know him and therefore are known by him, and you look at the fruit, and like this letter to the, the, the Thessalonians, you can know that you are part of God's plan, that he predestined from the beginning, and that you can rejoice in it and have confidence in where you stand with your salvation. Um, we have to go back to the audience. We have to go back to the context and understand what was being written and how it was being understood. So we come now to the table. Now, when God called the Hebrews, they were called Hebrews before they came out of Egypt. After they come out of Egypt, they're called the Israelites. Okay, But the Hebrews um, that come out of, of, of slavery... Um, it's because blood was put on the door and the Passover, the, the angel of death passed over those houses that were trusting God and the firstborn son died across Egypt, which is a foreshadowing of what God's gonna do with his only son, Jesus. And so the is Israelites, these, these Hebrew people, come out of, of slavery and form a nation that belongs to God, a, a nation of priests, if you will. And God says, I want you to commemorate when that happened, I want you to do the Passover meal every year to commemorate, to remember that this is kind of the genesis, the, the inauguration, the, 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 if you will, the creation myth of you as God's people is rooted in this historical event and you need to not lose sight of that. And so they would always partake and remember um, that they were bought out with blood that, that came at a price, that, that they did it in faith, and they come all the way forward till on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, they're celebrating this very same Passover. And the Passover that gave identity and formed the people of God who were the Jewish people, Jesus says now, when you do this remembrance meal, when you ground your identity, when you understand what formed you as a people of God, from now on, you don't look back to what formed the Israelites as the people of God. You look back to me and what I'm doing on the cross and understanding how I formed the church out of all nations 
to be the people of God to declare his praises. And as you remember me, you anchor yourself in God's choosing of me and then of you in me. You anchor yourself in God's plan and meta-narrative. You anchor yourself in God's will and you find your stability in life, not whether it's this house or that house, but knowing that you are someone who is included and that you can bank on those promises. You find meaning in that as you remember who you are in Christ Jesus by being the kind of people that would be here, by being the kind of people that would come and partake of this, by being the kind of people that would wash their minds with this story and form themselves up as being first and foremost, not a whitesma, not a citizen of the United States, but first and foremost, as someone belonging to the body of Christ, who is a stranger in this world, a sojourner, a pilgrim, a longing for and awaiting my return to my real home. So as the band comes out, I'm going to lead us in a quick prayer. But when and if this message resonates in you, that you can find identity there no matter how much sin is in your life or how much regret, but that this is what gives you your identity, not all the good things that we want to put on Facebook, then line up in the middle rows and you can swing uh, to the outside on your way out. But come and remember, and I would, I would dare say that Luther maybe has something to say here, that Jesus, who inaugurated this, is somehow vitally present in this. And that this is a very sacred act that we do, one that Paul says later in, in the book of Corinthians that we shouldn't do lightly. Um, it's an amazing thing. Father, we commit ourselves back to you and to your plan for us. We thank you for including us. Thank you for choosing us. We thank you that we can, can know you and be a part of what you're doing in this world and that despite the circumstances in our lives, we can know the joy of, of your Holy Spirit and that that joy is so transformational that it will be the witness that we, we want for the rest of this world and that in, in, and in this whole process that somehow we, we can just derive pleasure and satisfaction and confidence in knowing that we truly are in relationship with you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.